El Fanboy, episode 27. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 27th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. What's going on, guys? It's been a little bit of a break, hasn't it? I've never skipped a week before. Last week I had to do so, because your boy here needed a little vacation time, a little R&R, which, by the way, is kind of a misnomer, because there's no such thing as a vacation when you have two small children. Uh, Vacation is work. But, you know, I had a great time. We went camping upstate, a place called Louie Lake, and then we rounded out the trip with a couple nights in the capital of this here state of New York, in Albany. Uh, a couple nights in a hotel there, checked out some live theater and museums and all, you know, everyone had a great time. I had a great time. I had an absolutely insane Saturday uh, because I woke up at 6.15 in Albany. Got the kids and everyone down to the lobby. We had our free complimentary hotel breakfast. We got in the car. We left at 7.30 in the morning. We got to my house at 10 in the morning, so two and a half hours of driving. I spent two hours then getting ready for an event. I had to DJ a wedding that was back upstate. Yes, I stacked up my day this way because I'm fucking insane. So from 10 to 12, I spent two hours unloading my entire minivan, which was packed to the brim with camping gear, and then reloading it with all of my DJ gear, you know, speakers, lights, mixers, cables, tables, everything. Um, Steaming my suit and my shirt and my tie, taking a shower, downloading the rest of the couple's music so that at noon I can head pretty much right back where I'd come from, about an hour and a half north of me. Uh, You know, most of the way back to Albany where I had started my day. Uh, I did this insane six-hour wedding. It was all outdoors and a hot, muggy day. I sweated through my shirt like three times over. Uh, Good news is the wedding was a total blast and the couple was very happy. And then when it was all over at 8.30, I drove another hour and a half back home for a grand total of five and a half hours of driving on Saturday. But you know what? It was worth it. I had a fucking great week. Uh, there's one thing that I wasn't sure that I was going to bring up here, but you know, it's not entertainment based, but for those of you, I, I, I think you might find this interesting. So last Wednesday, while I was on my camping, uh, adventure, your boy and his family went through something that it, it's one of those scenarios that you, you kind of think could never happen to you. Uh, you kind of wish it would never happen to you, but essentially um, we went on a, on a, on a hike. Um, we went to, on a hike to this place called Watch Hill. And when I say we, I mean me, my wife, our two small kids, my cousin, her husband, and their two small kids who are also six and three, just like my kids, as well as my two in-laws who are both north of 60 and Two dogs, my dog Lucy, who's a seven-year-old Yorkie, their puppy Hank, who's a five-month-old hound. So 12 living entities entered the woods on Wednesday at about 6.30. My father-in-law all the while was shouting that this is a terrible idea because the sun's going to go down in about an hour and a half. But he's a bit of a hypochondriac, and he's neurotic, and he worries too much, so we just kind of shrugged him off. We had just done a hike the night before, and we had a great time. And we were in and out within about an hour, and there's still sun out at 7.30. So we thought, all right, you know, let's, John is going to bitch and moan, but we're still going to have a great time. So the problem with this, though, is the trail is not very tourist-friendly. There's no real signs. There's nothing that clearly says this is the way to go. And we're all just a bunch of city folk, really. None of us really go hiking and do this sort of outdoorsy, nature-y stuff. Hell, we didn't even have supplies for this. We had two flashlights just in case it starts to get a little dark. We didn't bring any water, any extra batteries, no nothing. But either way, we were gung-ho. So even though there wasn't very clear signage and no one looked at a map, we kind of chose a way to go and started going. 
Mind you, we didn't know if this was the walking trail, if this was the horse rider's trail. We just started walking on what looked like tread ground. We get into the woods. It takes about 35 minutes for us to arrive at the top of Watch Hill, which has a lovely view of Lake Pleasant, which is where we were staying near you know, Indian Lake. Um, but there's no rails. So we're basically standing on a cliff, the 12 of us, with two small children and dogs and senior citizens. So that was kind of like, oh, all right, that's, uh, you know, I wish we'd known that we're one step away from falling down a fucking cliff. But okay, let's keep walking. Uh, We came to a fork in the road, it looked like. At the top of the hill, you could either go back the way you came or you can continue down a trail. Now, me and my infinite wisdom... I thought, okay, you know what? This trail here is probably going to loop us back around to where we started. It looks like they probably did it like a circle. Because when we started the hike, you could have gone left or right. So I'm thinking, ah, okay, so we went left. And then when we come back, this is where we're going to discover that this trail here was the right side. So, okay, we continued down this trail. And this is where things start to get sort of stressful. We're walking, we're walking. My wife and I are having a great time. We're laughing at her dad who's stressing out in the background, who's pointing out that there's animal droppings on the, on the trail that we're really in the woods woods, right? You know, there's no water fountains. There's no benches. There's nothing paved. There's no fucking signs there. Every once in a while, you see a little marker on a tree that says trail that lets you know that you're on some sort of trail. doesn't specify if it's the main trail or some sort of, you know, uh, horse trail or something. It just says trail. So we're walking, we're laughing, we're having a good time. We're talking about how like this looks like we're in, uh, in on the planet Ondor where we want, we're going to see some Ewoks soon or some speeders go by. Cause like I said, this is legit woods and we're walking. Things are kind of steep and kind of stressful. There's downed trees. There's, you know, the, the, the trees are so high and so bushy that you can barely see the sun as it is. And now it's starting to get dark. Now it's like 7.45 and it's getting gloomier and gloomier. Nothing looks familiar. And I'm starting to wonder if my wide-eyed optimism and the joy that me and my wife have laughing at her dad, we're starting to wonder if maybe he was right. And maybe we've gone, we've made a huge mistake. Um, And we're walking and we're walking. Now it's eight o'clock and we're still not back at the cars. And the, the ground is just getting more and more treacherous and muddy, and it's seeming less and less like this was the type of easy trail we were told it was, that this was intended for children and that this was an easy hike, because it, it was getting pretty hairy. It looked like you really had to be an experienced hiker to make it through this trail we were on. Um, and suddenly we reach a point now where it's like 10 after 8, And the sun is pretty much disappearing over the mountains on the horizon. And we haven't seen a trail marker in about 20 minutes. And we are in the middle of fucking nowhere. And everyone's looking at me because I'm sort of like the trail. I'm like the leader of the expedition. And they're looking at my cousin's husband, Tom, because he's also, you know, he, we were both sort of like the young males who were guiding our, our, the women and children through the woods. And we both look at each other like, we're screwed. Because right now we've been hiking for about an hour and 40 minutes. So even if we were just decide, let's stop here, turn around and go back the way we came, we wouldn't get back to our cars till almost 10 o'clock. And we are in the woods, right? There's no lights anywhere. All we have are these two cheap flashlights that we bought on Amazon. So we can't go back an hour and 40 minutes the way we came, which was already a pretty treacherous hike. Imagine now doing it in pitch black. Or we can continue on this sort of path that we're on, which doesn't seem to be the legit path. But according to a map I have, we're maybe two miles away from a main road. And again, I can't stress this enough. Middle of fucking nowhere, no, no, nothing paved, no signage, and no real light ahead of us. So we realize now we are in a lot of trouble. And, you know, my cousin starts to sort of cry a little bit. My, my wife is looking at me, panicked. The kids are clinging to us. 
as we're realizing more and more that, oh my God, this, this looks like it is going to be as bad as it could have been. Just then we look across Indian Lake because we were near, you know, we were near the lake. We were maybe about 10 yards off of Indian Lake at the time. On the other side of Indian Lake, we spot two small lights, look kind of like flashlights. At this point, people in my party start to scream, help, help, we're lost, help. The kids start crying. And at this point, I realize like, wow, we, th- we're in an emergency. We're trapped in the woods, no cell phone service, no supplies, no water, no food, no sleeping bags, no nothing. And there's 12 living beings here who are figuring out how the hell we're going to get out of this situation. So the people in my party are shouting help and SOS. And suddenly there's like a panic in the air. And it takes about 20 minutes, but the lights that we saw on the other end start to come towards us. So now we're like, okay, maybe these people can help us. It ends up being two canoes, uh, two guys on each. They come up and they're scared of us because they don't know who we are. So before, all of a sudden, before they're willing to get really close to the shore, remember, because it's so dark, they can't even see us. They just hear voices, panicked voices. So before they get really close, we hear them go, listen, guys, we want to help, but this is a little sketchy. We can't see you. We want to make sure we're not walking into something here. And I listen, I don't doubt it. I don't uh, fault them for that. You know, they, they might have been walking into an ambush. It was a sort of sketchy situation. So they said, you know, you mentioned you have kids. Can we see your kids? And right then me and Tom hold up our two three-year-olds. We're like, see, we're not here to, uh, uh, you know, assault you. I swear we're, we're, we're stranded. So the two canoes roll up. These four guys aren't much better off than we are because they're also just tourists. They're not locals. So they say, listen, we can take a few of you on our boats, but A, we can't fit all 12 of you. And B, we're not exactly sure where we would take you. We you know, we saw some lights in the establishments about two miles west of here. So the best we can do is like paddle over there with your loved ones and hope to get them to come send help. So we're like, well, we have no real options and the sun is gone. And now we all, we just have some faint moonlight and I have to put my wife and my two kids on a canoe with two strangers and send them off and hope that I can trust these two guys. Tom, my cousin and their two kids get on the other canoe and they both take off in this sort of vague idea of we're going to find someone to help us, leaving me sitting on a rock on the side of Indian Lake with nothing but the two dogs, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, and we're just sitting there in the darkness holding a flashlight for an hour in pitch dark uh, without any idea if we'd be found how they were going to get people to come help us, if these people who took our loved ones are trustworthy at all. And in the middle of that hour, as my father-in-law is stressing about there being creatures and you know animals in the woods and, and this being a horrendous situation, you know, he doesn't really have a lot of grace under fire. He's someone who just goes right for the, this is the worst thing that's ever happened while me and my mother-in-law are trying to be optimistic. In the middle of that hour, as he's talking about that stuff, we kind of fall silent, and I shit you not, I heard a howl in the distance. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was a coyote. I don't know if it was a wolf. I don't think it was a wolf. But imagine, if you will, you're in this situation in the dark, and you have no way of bettering your situation, and you hear, So I'm like, okay, this is going to be a really interesting night. And uh, thankfully, after about an hour, we heard, it was like a movie. We heard in the distance, and two motorboats 
come speeding generally in our direction and then kind of start veering off course. So now me, my father-in-law, my, my mother-in-law, we're standing up. We're waving our hands, screaming, we're here. We're here. Help. And then they turn around. They come close. And it's like the cavalry has arrived. They take me, my in-laws, and the two dogs. They explain that our family was brought to this resort and that they're comfortable and they're being fed. And <laughs> I'm telling it was just nuts. And then they race us back. I'm freezing. It's a 42-degree night, and we're going at top speed on a boat. I'm getting wet and cold, and I don't care. I climb onto a dock. My wife comes running down the dock, sobbing, and she wraps her arms around me. And I ask how the kids are, and they're okay. They're drinking hot chocolate upstairs in the lodge. And so came to an end, like a really stressful two-hour period in my life, which was like definitely one of the strangest situations, one of the scariest, legitimately scary situations I've ever personally been in. Um, yeah, dude, I uh, I couldn't believe that it got it got to that, you know. I just. I kept thinking all the while, ah, they, we're going to find the cars. You know, th this trail will eventually bring us back to the parking lot. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And I just couldn't believe that this was real life. Um, you know, I never feared for my life, mind you. you know, I thought, okay, worse comes to worse. We're going to have to sleep here on the ground. We're getting, you know, there, there were bugs crawling all over us and it was not fun. But I'm like, you know what? We're going to sleep here when the sun comes up. Me, my in-laws, and the dogs are going to walk for the, try to find the main road, and we'll make it. So we wouldn't have died, but it was, oof, shit got real. Um, but yeah, so that's how I spent my week away. I don't know. I hope you guys had a much better week than I did, uh, at least in terms of not you know having to worry about the safety of you and your loved ones. Um, but okay, I'm back. Today's episode is going to be a little bit on the lean and mean side of things because it's a beautiful day in here in New York and it's one of the final weeks of summer vacation. Both my kids are going to school. Yes, even my three-year-old is going to begin nursery school in September and I'm like, I can't believe we're already there. So both my kids are going back to school. My wife is going to go back to school. She's a school teacher. So I'm going to have a crap ton of alone time. Uh, starting in September, and that's when I plan on finally launching the Patreon account and finally giving you guys some additional content that I've been mulling over and talking about and sort of um, brainstorming out loud here with you all, if you will. So today's episode, since I want to be able to go and enjoy the nice weather and enjoy one of the final few weeks of summer break, is you know <clears throat> it's probably going to be a little less than an hour. Um, but I, I did promise you guys that as part of this week, I'm going to be delivering a special event and I am on Friday. I have a special thing. I don't want to talk about it too much. I don't want to explain it too much, but it's basically sort of a sample of the kind of content I want to create for you guys once I get the Patreon going. And the inaugural edition of that is coming on Friday. So you're going to get your El Fanboy fix today. And on Friday, even if today's is a little on the short side. Um, and since I am sort of under the gun, I'm actually going to attempt to do this entire episode in one take. Yes, I'm going to John Carpenter Halloween the first 20 minutes of this podcast. I'm going to do the whole thing in one take. I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. So let's dive in. Hit the ground running with the week's news. All right, all right, all right. As per usual, we're going to start things off with a look at the box office. This being Tuesday, the weekend actuals are in. So this week saw a couple of new releases, um, and we're going to talk about those new releases in just a second, but here's your top five. So number one was The Hitman's Bodyguard, starring Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. It opened to $21.3 million. It actually exceeded its projections, which were going to be in the mid to upper teens. 
So good for Hitman's Bodyguard. Number two was Annabelle Creation in its second week. This was last week's number one film. Annabelle Creation pulled in another muscular 15.6% after cooling 55.4% from its opening weekend. In third place was Logan Lucky with 7.6 million bucks. Um, Number four is Dunkirk hanging in there in its fifth week. Uh, after a 39.2% drop, it pulled in $6.6 million. That's Christopher Nolan's latest, for those of you uh, unsure for some reason. In fifth place, there is The Nut Job. Uh, the Nut Job 2, rather, Nutty by Nature. In its second week, it cooled 39% to pull in $5 million. bucks. That's your top five other notables. Uh, in seventh place, Spider-Man Homecoming is still hanging in there with $4.2 million. Uh, Girls Trip, which is one of the uh, great little success stories this summer, pulled in another $3.9 million. And Dark Tower continues its sad plummet towards oblivion with uh, $3.7. So let's, let's look at all this a little bit, all right? A little analysis here. The Hitman's Bodyguard got pretty shitty reviews. I uh, got a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. It did get, uh, I guess, a somewhat decent cinema score, a B plus, which again, it's it's not great because uh, even a B plus, as much as it sounds like you, you know, you, you'd be happy to get homework back in school with a B plus grade. In terms of cinema score, anything in the Bs is considered pretty, eh. but still. With so-so word of mouth and 39%, this $30 million movie managed to pull in 21. So, you know, it's a soft win for them. It's probably going to definitely, I should say, make back its budget since it is a fairly low-budget film. You got Ryan Reynolds in there. You got uh, Samuel Jackson in there. And so, you know, it's they haven't opened it international yet. So Hitman's Bodyguard, good on them. That is a decent open. Um, the other big one, though, is Logan Lucky, which, you know, people were sort of hoping that it would be kind of like uh, Baby Driver. You know, it was kind of marketed similarly with, the you know, just kind of like a heist movie with cool characters, with an original concept. Uh, that, you know, that opening is kind of on the low ends. Uh, you know, 7.6 mil. That's not hot, and that's actually a little lower than what the uh, estimates were on Sunday, which had it closer to a flat $8 million. So, look, it's a $29 million movie. How does it stack up to Baby Driver, you want to know? Well, since Baby Driver is kind of the big comparison for this, let's just go back to its opening weekend. So the Edgar Wright-directed Baby Driver, when it opened, it opened to... 20.5 million dollars um so yeah th- th- this didn't quite stack up to baby driver despite the fact that the reviews were 93 percent so you know i i it, it'll it, i think it'll have legs because of the reviews and because there is an appetite out there for original content i think what really hurt it is the fact that logan lucky and the Hitman's Bodyguard are both essentially going after the same sort of audience. You know, if you really think about it, very similar demographics would be interested in both the Hitman's Bodyguard and Logan Lucky. So here's hoping that Logan Lucky bounces back and through positive word of mouth, uh, it is one of these movies that legs out a decent box office. Um, other than that, there's not a hell of a lot to say. You know, the other, you know, just I want to just talk about Dark Tower for a second. Uh, that $60 million film, which had so much writing on it and, and, and was the hope of Sony that it would become a franchise starter, is currently at a worldwide of $71.8 million. That's really rather sad and ho-hum. They still have some other markets to explore, but Dark Tower is con- definitely not a notch in the win column for Sony as of now. But okay, so now let's get into some to some uh, some DC stuff here because there there was some interesting rumors that sprouted up while I was away 
and I'd like to address them. Uh, my take on one of them may surprise you, but basically there was a rumor that, that came from Reddit and everyone wants to discredit that Zack Snyder may be returning to the Justice League production. Um, and people are, you know, running with this story and they're talking about it like, you know, he's going to come in and finish up the film, even though Joss Whedon was supposedly finishing up the film. And here's where I stand on that whole brouhaha. Um, I actually believe it. I believe that Snyder is returning. But what I don't believe is the leap that he's actually going to be working on the film. Here's what I think is happening. I'm pretty sure that Whedon is now closing in on his final cut. And they're bringing Snyder back in so that he could see it, to make sure that he has uh, some say in the final cut, make sure that he's at least comfortable with it. Because what's right around the corner, folks? He's going to have to start promoting this thing. You know, Whedon is not going to be the face of this movie. You know, he, he's not even getting a director's credit, even though he's done sizable work in overhauling it. And, and you know, he, ha- he has to show Snyder the tweaked ending and then the film now with Danny Elfman's score and everything. You know, he's not going to be the guy who promotes this film. Zack Snyder is. So they have to br- you know, sort of boomerang him back into the process so that he could see the final cut. Maybe offer up a note or two about, you know, something he would like to you know have tweaked since it is his baby. But for all intents and purposes, when you're promoting this film, you have to have Snyder there as the front man for it in terms of all the director interviews. So they were they were always going to have to bring him back during the PR you know, phase of things. And what I'm guessing is he's coming back to look at the final cuts offer up any notes he has so that he can be comfortable promoting this film when the time comes. Because it would be weird if he didn't come, if he, if he wasn't there for the final cut, if he wasn't there to see it, and he's out there promoting the film as if it's still in the same state it was when he left it. So that's what I think is going on. So I think this source from Reddit, I do think that they heard correctly that Snyder's returning, but I think they went the wrong direction with it, thinking that now he's going to be finishing off their production. That's I, I really sincerely doubt that. I think he's literally just coming to check on what Whedon did, because now he's going to have to promote the thing, and it's still his name on the damn thing. So he has to be comfortable with that final cut. Um, so that's what I think about that. Um, and while we're on the subject of Justice League and of Whedon, you know, there's this sad sort of story going on now where uh, his ex-wife uh, has penned a letter that was published by The Rap, which, you know, I, I consider this all sort of like tabloidy, gossipy, just like I, I, I hate this sort of stuff. I hate when when entertainment sites start running basically celebrity tabloid type stuff. Um, and you know, listen, I'm not here to make an opinion on what she said, but she basically wrote this long sort of open letter to try and, uh, decry Whedon and call him a hypocrite and say he, you know, air all his dirty laundry that he was apparently a womanizer and, uh, he wasn't faithful to her, that he had several affairs that he admitted to. She posted quotes from private letters he'd written to her. Yeah, this is all like nasty, personal, vindictive stuff. Um, and this isn't to say I'm defending Whedon. It sounds like he was a he was a dirtbag of a husband in terms of, you know, being faithful and doing the right thing. Uh, do I agree with some of the places she's taken it? Not really. But then again, I'm not her and I'm no one to pass judgment. This is her experience. But it sounds to me like, you know, just me, this is not, I'm not an authority on this. I wasn't there for it. But it sounds like she, she wants to paint the infidelity as a direct hypocrisy of the idea that he's a very feminist person. Um, and I, you know, that I, I guess, you know, like I said, that that's where she's taken it. And she, she's the one this happened to. So I cannot say that that's right or wrong. She's fully entitled, obviously, to interpret, digest, and take all that in the way she sees fit. 
But, you know, w- w- when you read some of the, the, the headlines that have gone on about this, you'd almost think that he was like beating her and putting down women and something like that. No, he was just a fucking garden variety cheating asshole. And I don't know that cheating means that you respect women less. I don't know that cheating makes you a hypocrite if you're someone who champions strong women. Uh, I think the argument could be made in the opposite direction, actually. Yeah, maybe he just loves women so much and respects them and is so drawn to their power and their personalities and their perseverance that he almost kind of can't help himself. Listen, I'm not letting him off the hook. He's still a dirtbag for cheating on his wife, and that's unexcusable stuff. But the conclusions, you know, the, the way she pens this scathing letter, you know, she, she's basically trying to say, like, you can't, you can no longer look at him as someone who champions women because of what he did to me. And listen, I totally get where she's coming from. I feel weird even talking about this stuff because I don't like getting into celebrity gossip. But the reason I bring any of this up is because it's just unbelievable the amount of drama and the amount of sort of soap opera stuff going on behind the scenes for fucking Justice League. Because Whedon was brought in a couple of months ago, and he was seen as like, you know, the great hope for this production. Warner Brothers executives were out high-fiving each other, going, look, we got the Avengers guy to come in and rescue our Justice League movie. People are going to be excited about this. And now he's being turned into a pariah who they're probably now going to have to publicly downplay his relationship to the film as they're bringing in Snyder to help promote the film and hope that this negative energy surrounding the Whedon name doesn't hurt the film that they're so desperately trying to save. It's just unbelievable the amount of behind-the-scenes turmoil going on when it comes to Justice League. It seems like a cursed production. It really does at this point. Everything about this first phase of the DCEU as we're now heading into brighter territory with Jeff Johns calling the shots. But it seems like everything in that first phase of DC has has sort of been uh, cursed to an extent. Um, But yeah, so I just kind of wanted to chime in about uh, that sort of DC news that happened in uh, in my absence Uh, Moving away from that, and there was another big story uh, that's going to lead me into some Netflix items here. You know, Disney has made the decision to pull its movies from Netflix, and they're starting their own streaming services. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm not surprised. Um, You know, if you think about it, Disney has decades upon decades worth of content. They, they, They could really just have their own network. And they own Netflix. You know, for now they're saying... That, I mean, and they own Marvel. And for now they're saying that Marvel stuff is going to be staying on Netflix, but they're pulling all their movies from Netflix. But you got to imagine, you know, big picture, they're going to slowly start, you know... Uh, anything new that's Marvel-related will be on the Disney thing. Anything that has already been established as a Netflix Marvel deal, like the, all the Defenders characters, will stay there. But you got to imagine that moving forward, any uh, streaming TV series that are based on Marvel are going to be on Disney's streaming service. Um, so listen, you know, there were people who I spoke to who were like, this is suicide for Disney. Why would they do this? Netflix gives them such a great platform. But this is Disney. You know, at this point, it's hard to doubt them. They make a lot of great, bold, interesting moves. They've got all the content. They have the brand awareness. They have the business savvy. Uh, as, as, as long as the pricing is competitive, I would not sleep on this Disney streaming service. When it gets announced, it will be big. And I don't think they're going to miss Netflix. But on the flip side, I don't think Netflix is going to miss Disney. Because they've been investing hardcore. You know, they knew that this sort of thing was going to happen at some point. So they've been investing in original content a great deal in these last few years. And according to you know, Market Watch and other you know, things that analysts are talking about elsewhere on these here interwebs, 
you know, they were sort of ready for this. They always kind of knew that licensing third-party material was going to help grow the Netflix brand and bring people into their subscription base, but it was going to be original content that kept them there. And, you know, they've been investing and investing and investing, and they're going to be fine um, because just the original content itself is so strong. And it is sort of remarkable how strong it is. Netflix has become one of those. For me, it's almost like HBO in terms of the the, the caliber of the quality of the of their of their output. Uh, you know, they spare no expense, and they really kind of go all in on supporting their projects. And they always have this air of prestige and Hollywood, you know, production value. And speaking of investing. You know, Robert De Niro was recently out there talking about his next film, the one he's making with Martin Scorsese, which is also going to include Al Pacino. And it's just all all kinds of epic. If you're someone like me who grew up in the 80s and 90s and remembers all the amazing, you know, gangster movies, you know, the Goodfellas and um, Casino and even though this isn't even though this isn't Scorsese, but Michael Mann's Heat you know, th- this movie is like a holy grail. It's called The Irishman. And De Niro was recently out talking about how Netflix was really the only way they can get it made. Um, because Netflix stepped in with an offer that they couldn't refuse, to, to quote another sort of classic gangster film. Uh, they offered them $100 million to make this film. And... They couldn't find that sort of financing anywhere, which on the flip side of all this is probably kind of depressing. If you're De Niro and Scorsese, you probably very easily remember a time when all you had to do was go to a studio and say, hi, I'm Robert De Niro. This is Martin Scorsese. Give us a blank check. We're going to make you a classic. Nowadays, they don't have that sort of clout. Nowadays, no stars really have that sort of clout anymore, but... You know, Netflix was willing to do it. Netflix gave them a hundred million bucks, and it sounds like they're going to need it because one of the things they want to do involves a lot of technology, because they want to tell a story that spans several decades. But rather than hire someone to play a young De Niro, they want to essentially de-age De Niro. They want to do the sort of stuff that we've seen in Benjamin Button. They want to do the sort of stuff we've seen in Captain America Civil War, where they de-aged Robert Downey Jr., or in the most recent Pirates of the Caribbean, where they de-aged Johnny Depp. Um, So they want to have all this digital CGI trickery to help make De Niro seem, you know, several decades younger than he actually is, leading up to like the the stuff that is considered quote unquote present day, where he can just be himself. Um, and you know, and here's what he said about that. He said, you know, we need the money to do it right, and it just wasn't financeable in in another way, in the traditional film way, if you will. Um, you know, in terms of the. Uh, you know, the filming schedule and the production itself, you know, De Niro said, you know, they're trying to do it as best as it's ever been. We're doing the young stuff first and taking it decade by decade so that later the oldest stuff will be closer to our own age. So they're trying to really make it as good as they can make it. And that's the goal, that it can be something special that everyone would want to see and see it done as well as it can at this point. I'm excited by it and looking forward to it. Um, you know, and essentially, you know, it, it's based on a book by Charles Brandt called I Heard You Paint Houses. Uh, it basically tackles the idea of this real life mobster named Frank Sheeran, who he played by De Niro, who's uh, on his deathbed, he made a confession. And his confession is pretty blockbuster. Uh, he says he killed Jimmy Hoffa who will be played by Al fucking Pacino. Uh, He also claimed that he knew significant intel on JFK's assassination. So this is a guy who sounds like he lived a very uh, rocky, insane life. Um, And they're trying to do it justice. And Netflix was ready to pay up. So you know what? If if Netflix is going to start making movies of this caliber with this sort of talent, they're really really not going to miss Disney when those movies come off their, uh, off their, uh, you know, archives there. Um, 
And while we're on the subject of Netflix and their and the, the the brilliant production value and the wonderful shows that they produce, you know, you you can't talk about Netflix original content without talking about Stranger Things these days. And uh, the the Duffer Brothers recently spoke to Vulture about how many seasons they would like to run of Stranger Things. And it, and it sounds like they may have sort of tempered down their expectations to a degree. And he sort of explains why. Because, you know, Kelvin broke the story a while back that Netflix was prepared to make a five-season run for Stranger Things. And that's what the Duffer Brothers wanted at the time. And that's what we were going to get. Now he's saying, we're thinking it will be a four-season thing and then out. Uh, we have to keep adjusting the story, though I don't know if we can justify s- something bad happening to them once a year. He's talking about you know something bad happening to the kids once a year. Uh, they're going to have to get the fuck out of this town. So it seems like, you know, it seems like at some point they had thought about doing five. But as they're sort of mapping out the story, they're realizing we don't want this to start becoming hokey. Now where, you know, every year some awful thing is happening in this town. So now they're scaling it down from what was originally reported as five seasons to four. But who knows? As they adjust the story, maybe they'll find some more fertile ground or they'll introduce some new characters that could sort of push the series in a new direction or not. So for now, they're looking at the four season thing. But we know that Netflix at one point had said, you know, we'll give you funding for five so we'll see what happens there. Um, and as you guys know, uh, the sheriff from Stranger Things is now going to be the new Hellboy. And there's uh, there's some new updates on Hellboy, if you will. There, It's been reported now that they're going to be bringing in from the comics Major Ben Damio, uh, who, you know, he's joining the BPRD. Um He's being played by Ed Screen, or Ed Screen. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but you probably know him best from Deadpool. Uh, he was in Deadpool. He was the main baddie there. Uh, he was also in The Transporter Reloaded, and he was also on Game of Thrones. He actually originated the role of Dario before he you know, basically jumped ship to go lead The Transporter Reloaded. By the way, I was so glad he did that because when he was introduced on the show, I could see my wife swooning and I'm like, you know what? I hope they kill this guy off. This is Game of Thrones. Can we just kill this guy off soon? I don't want to be sitting next to my wife here while she's a puddle over this Dario motherfucker. And then he left like two episodes after he uh, after he was introduced because then the season ended and in the interim between seasons, he decided I'd rather be the lead in the Transporter Reloaded than a supporting player in Game of Thrones. Whether or not that was a great move for him remains to be seen. That series, uh, I believe, is over. And Game of Thrones is still a huge phenomenon. Um, but hey, I'm, I'm just glad he's out of Game of Thrones because it was pissing me off seeing my wife's doe eyes whenever he came on the screen. But anyway, I digress. So Ed Screen is going to be in Hellboy. Um Right now, you know, certain sites are still referring to it as Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen. There have also been recent reports that the film was actually going to ditch that title. We don't know what it's going to be called, but that's some uh, Hellboy news for you. Um, And moving right along, there's also a little bit of an update on Godzilla versus King Kong. For those of you who are uh, keeping track of that one, which I am, by the way, I'm totally in. I have the VHS of the original one from the sixties of King Kong versus Godzilla. And even though I found uh, Gareth Edwards, Godzilla to be very sort of ho-hum, I'm still excited because it's freaking Godzilla versus King Kong with today's technology. That's going to be an epic throwdown. And on the theme of epic throwdowns, you know, director Adam Wingard kind of made it very clear that this is not going to be another sort of Batman v Superman situation where the entire thing is built around this marquee matchup, but the matchup itself ends up being sort of second fiddle to, you know, like there's no clear winner and it lasts very little. Um, 
according to Wingard, there's going to be a real, actual, epic fight, and there will be one definitive winner when Godzilla versus King Kong finally sort of get into the nitty-gritty. So I'm very intrigued by that. I'm also intrigued by the fact that there will be other monsters in play here. Uh, you know, we know that in Godzilla, king of all monsters, or king of monsters, that they're going to be bringing in Mothra and all these other kinds of, you know, classic Godzilla uh, creatures. But according to, according to Wingard, there's also going to be extra monsters in Godzilla versus Kong. So, you know what? The, the, I, I'm very intrigued by this. And I now I have an additional reason to be intrigued, too. Somehow I hadn't realized that Godzilla versus Kong was actually being directed by someone who I have a lot of sort of fanboy uh, background uh, knowledge or, or investment in. Uh, his name is Michael Doherty. And for those of you who don't know Michael Doherty, uh, you know, he co-wrote Superman Returns. And, you know, listen, I know that film is divisive and it's seen nowadays as this sort of epic fail. And many would argue that, you know, the fact that that film underperformed and did what it did, you know, sort of forever changed the DC landscape as we know it. Because as I've chronicled elsewhere, if Superman Returns had lived up to its potential, it was going to lead to a team-up movie with Bat with Batman. It would have been, you know, Brian Singer's Superman and Christopher Nolan's Batman uh, basically in a shared universe together. And DC would have had the whole cinematic universe concept up and running before Marvel did. You know, that was the original plan, for to have Batman begin and to have Superman return independently so that they can then be put into a film together. Uh, but Doherty co-wrote the script with Dan Harris based on a story by Brian Singer. And, you know, we know how that movie turned out. I'll always have a soft spot for it. But the reason I bring it up now is I realize I can trace back where my where my geekdom went on steroids to Superman Returns. Because prior to Superman Returns, I was more or less just like a, a film fan. You know, I was just a fan. I, I used to like to just go to the movies, watch them, determine whether or not I thought they were good, talk about them afterward with fellow film junkies, and just sort of, you know, just take them in. I, I was more of just a purveyor of entertainment. When Superman Returns came out, you know, I was I was 23 and I had been waiting this film for what felt like a lifetime. It was probably the geekiest I've ever been about anything up to that point. I had a countdown on the desktop of my PC. That's how old all this shit is. I had a countdown to the release of the film. I was so invested in so many different ways beyond it just being a good film I was invested in every nook and cranny of how this thing was produced, how it, how it would be received, what went into it. I was watching Brian Singer's online video blogs from the production that were published on this website called bluetights.net. Um, and it was the first time where when the film came out, I was like tracking it. I was tracking I was tracking in like pre-sale numbers. I was tracking the box office daily. I was tracking what the final production budget was. I was tracking what went into the budget. I was tracking what went into the decisions to cut out the return from Krypton sequence and all the you know like I suddenly like my obsession with that movie and it being great and me wanting it to be great is sort of what turned me into the guy you know me to be today. Uh, very like hyper analytical and really wanting to see how the donuts are made, you know. Um, so when I saw Michael Doherty in these reports today, when I was getting ready to do today's show, it just like, wow, I didn't realize that he had fully rebounded because after... After Superman Returns, he kind of sort of faded away a bit. You know, him and Harris and Singer had been a great creative team in terms of they they also wrote X-Men 2 uh, together. And X2 is, to this day, still one of my favorite superhero films. So, 
you know, they were sort of a hot commodity. They did X2, then they did Superman Returns, and then they sort of disappeared a little bit, you know, and Doherty started uh, writing and directing like low budget horror films. And I kind of was under the assumption that I guess, you know, I guess he's just going to be a sort of under the radar type of uh, filmmaker now. But he's directing uh, Godzilla King of Monsters, dude. So, you know, it also shows that he must have made a good, you know, he must have had a good relationship with Legendary because Legendary is the one that helped produce and distribute Superman Returns. They, they were still a new company when Superman Returns and Batman Begins came out. Legendary had just sort of jumped onto the scene. And I think that was one of the reasons why they came out guns blazing with Superman Returns. They probably gave Singer too much money. They kind of let him run wild uh, without checking how the film was going to be. And then they ended up with some egg on their face as this huge investment and huge sort of gamble they, they made uh, didn't really pay off for them. But I guess they must have still remained enamored with Michael Doherty. He still has a relationship with them because now he's making Godzilla king of monsters for them. And I don't know. I just that might have all just been a very uninteresting tangent for you. But for me, it was just interesting to see Michael Doherty and to realize this is the same guy. So he's about to come back in a big way and as a director, not just like a co-screenwriter. So uh, good for you, Mr. Doherty. Um, and my bid for a one take show just went totally into the shitter. Thanks to my, uh, my MacBook suddenly deciding to shit the bed. So listen, I got 50 minutes in without having to break, but now we continue. Um, so there's also some star Wars news that has to be discussed. Uh, while I was away, it was announced that it looks like there's an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie that is now in development, possibly even a Jabba the Hutt movie in development. Um, so here's what I think is going on, uh, and then I'll sort of react to the rumors. But what, what I think is going on is the folks at Lucasfilm right now, they probably have all kinds of different things in different stages of development. And then they're going to decide which ones to produce based on how well they come together. That's what I sort of get the feeling is going on. Similar to like what's going on with HBO, by the way. For those of you who are unaware, HBO currently has four different spinoffs for Game of Thrones in development. That doesn't mean all four are getting made. Shit, it doesn't even mean one of them is getting made. But it just means they have teams that are sort of exploring creative ideas, putting together pitches, writing pilots and, and treatments. And then at some point, those things are going to be presented to the top brass. And then from there, HBO will say, okay, this is the one we're going to move forward on. We're throwing out the other three. Or, you know what? All, none of these four seem strong enough. We're going to go back to the drawing board and we'll see what happens next. I think Lucasfilm is in that same sort of stage right now. They realize they've just inherited, well, not inherited, they purchased this huge library Disney did, right? Disney purchased a huge galaxy when they purchased the Star Wars IP from George Lucas. So right now they're looking at everything. They're looking at a Jabba movie. They're looking at a Boba Fett movie. They're looking at a Kenobi movie. They're probably figuring out, can we do a sort of standalone Darth Vader movie? They're looking at all of the popular characters and going, okay, how do we expand this universe, give fans what they like, keep the franchise alive, uh, and they're just going to... You know, it doesn't mean that they're all getting made. With that said, of the ones that they're kicking around, it looks like the Kenobi one is has got the most potential. It has the most upside at this time. It has upside in that it's based on a fan-favorite character that actually has a lot of untold story to tell. You know, there's some characters that like, you know, like Han Solo, for example, he's getting his own movie. But does anyone really care about young Han Solo, especially a Han Solo that's already an adult? You know, I've already said a million times till I'm blue in the fucking face. And I'll say it one more time for those not paying attention. You know, uh, a Han Solo in his teens figuring out, you know, how to become a smuggler and figuring it, and us seeing how it is he fell into this life. Could be pretty interesting. A Han Solo movie where he's already 30 and is already, you know, it just, it makes no sense. Uh, we, he was, uh, it just, 
Uh, I can't go. I can't go there. So Han Solo seems like a needless sort of place to go. There are, but with Kenobi, there's plenty of untapped ground, and there's the fact that everyone loves you and McGregor. He's like a fanboy wet dream. Everyone loves him. Even through the prequels, where everyone shit all over the prequels, everyone always pretty much agreed that McGregor's Kenobi was a bright spot in a very bleak trilogy. So then you also have the fact that he's publicly said that he would do it. He would be happy to return and play Kenobi. That's pretty huge. So... And then, and then they've hired Stephen Daldry, who looks, or, or, or he's listed as being in talks. Stephen Daldry is a big freaking deal. All right, he's already been nominated twice for Best Director, Best Academy Award for The Hours, and for Billy Elliot. He's a serious filmmaker. He's a writer. He's a director. He's a producer. And if he's overseeing it, that's very good news. So between having Daldry in the mix, between having an eager and totally down to do it McGregor and a character that people love that actually has places that can be explored. I mean, Jesus, you know, the, the movie itself seems like a definite, uh, how should I phrase this? It just seems like their best bet at this point. I don't think there's really any interest in a Jabba the Hutt movie. You know, sure, have him pop up in the Boba Fett movie, but don't make a Jabba the Hutt movie. Come on. Not interested in that whatsoever. Um, and something I am very much interested in, though, is Star Wars The Last Jedi. I finally sort of broke down and started reading up on it. You know, I've been trying to avoid it, but there was a spread in my favorite magazine last week, and I decided, all right, I trust this magazine. They don't tend to spoil things. So I'm going to read their story. Uh, the publication I'm referring to, by the way, is Entertainment Weekly. I know it is a little sort of outdated to get magazines in the mail. You know, nowadays with the internet and everything, you know, we all get our news in other more convenient and free ways. But I've actually been a subscriber to Entertainment Weekly for about 16 years now. Without fail, I get a magazine in the mail every week, and I love that damn thing. Um, because, like, for me, I just wanted, like, just quick, tiny little tangent. I love the way they cover the entertainment business because they cover it as fans. They cover it as they want to make you a fly on the wall uh, on the production for this thing that you're excited about. They're not cynical. They're not snobby. They don't really editorialize much aside from in the actual review section. They have, they cover a very wide swath of entertainment from film to television, to music, to books and podcasts and video games and their staff, like the editorial staff there seems to always sort of have the, the, the running sort of mandate of, Let's just let's let's approach this as fans first. You know, let's bring our readers into this production, into this interview you're having with this star they love. And let's let's nurture their fandom. Let's not make you know, let's not be let's not be high and mighty and try to observe this in some sort of cynical way with an ulterior motive. So they really celebrate entertainment. They bring love and passion to this. And that's why I continue to give them my dollars and I continue to subscribe to an actual paper magazine that I sit and read every week. Um, so I strongly suggest, by the way, that you subscribe to EW. Uh, but they, they did a great spread on Last Jedi. And I know last week a bunch of new photos were released. And basically a lot of the nuts and bolts of, the, of their Star Wars feature were released free online, which, you know, it's sad that they have to resort to that because then it's like... You know, why pay for the magazine? You know, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? You know what I mean? But either way, uh, so you might have read some of it. I finally sat down and read it myself. And Last Jedi sounds pretty fucking interesting. You know, I hope it lives up to its potential. I really do. Because something that they seem to be exploring a great deal is Luke himself. You know, seeing how it is he ended up on on the island of Akto and and why it is that he's purposely sort of exiled himself because it sounds like Luke knows what's been going on 
He knows about Han Solo being in danger and dying. He knows what's going on with Rey, and he still actively turned his back on trying to help Leia and Luke and, and, and Han and everything. So what is it that happened to Luke that has him off on this island? What is his new outlook on life that has forced him into being this hermit? You know, it sounds like we really are going to get into the meat and potatoes of Luke's psyche, which, you know, something I've brought up several times before is that was one of the things that brought Abrams back into the fold. When J.J. Abrams was, he originally turned down Star Wars, um, you know, Kathleen Kennedy pitched him the question of who is Luke Skywalker? And Abrams was so sort of titillated by that, that he said, you know what? I'm going to do The Force Awakens. And he sort of set the stage. And now Ryan Johnson's going to grab the baton and keep going now as we're going to look at this, you know, seminal pop culture figure, Luke Skywalker, in a whole new way. And, you know, it just, I hope it lives up because it sounds like they really are going to like pit him into a corner. He really is going to be this sort of, you know, anti-hero in this film to a degree where he wants nothing to do with it. He knows full well the crisis that the galaxy is in, and yet he still thinks things are better off with him in hiding. Uh, if the writing and the acting lives up, the premise of all that sounds really, really interesting. Um, and then just the subtext too, you know, Ray has been, uh, has been abandoned. You know, her whole life, she doesn't know who her parents are. She's been on her own, scrounging for things. And now here she is in front of Luke, this mythical figure she's heard of, this person of legend. And he turns his back on her. He wants nothing to do with her. He's not happy to even see that lightsaber. This is not the warm, you know, homecoming that she thought it might be to finally, you know, find Luke and bring him back into the fray. He wants no part of any of this. So it's going to force her as a character to have to confront her, you know, her trauma, her baggage of having been abandoned and, and having, you know, no parental figures. And now Luke is who could be her mentor turns his back on her and he doesn't want to help. It just sounds like, you know, there's a, it, it sounds like, this could be a very deep and interesting and thoughtful film. Um, so, uh, Last Jedi looks very good. I just, I, I, I hope it lives up um, because I, I kind of need it to. Um, God, that sounded melodramatic. But, you know, I love this stuff. And The Last Jedi is kind of like, for me, the big thing I'm looking forward to this year. There are other films I'm excited about. But Last Jedi for me is going to be like the make or break thing. You know, if Justice League comes out and it sucks, I'll be a little sad, but I'll be okay. Uh, if these other movies I'm interested in, like Stephen King's It um, or Kingsman, The Golden Circle, you know, if those come out and they're just meh, I'll be fine. If Last Jedi is meh, I'm going to be depressed for a while. So I'm just hoping very, you know, very much so that The Last Jedi lives up. Um, but that's that. Uh, I'm going to wrap things up with a recommendation for you. Um, so for some reason lately, I've been thinking a lot about heist films. I, just like out of nowhere, really. I've been going to the beach a lot, and I keep thinking about Point Break. Every time I'm there, I think about the, the crazy sequence at the end with Patrick Swayze on the giant waves in Australia. And I keep thinking, man, I want to sit down and watch Point Break. It's probably been about 15 years since I've watched Point Break. So I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about Heat a lot lately, too. Um, my, my buddy Joel came by. He's my actor friend. And it's funny because in college, you know, we were theater majors, and we were sort of like the titans of that department. For about four years there, we were the De Niro and Pacino of our theater department. You know, classes, you know, like the, our professors would put us into scenes together and basically use us as examples to teach the class for like what to do. And it was, I mean, it was an honor and it was a lot to take when I was like 20 or 21 and still trying to figure out what kind of man I'm going to be. But he and I were like the titans of that department for a while. 
And he's still an actor, and I still act on occasion. And sometimes we do this geeky thing where we hang out, and he'll pull up a scene from a movie or from a play, and he'll text me it, and then we'll stand there with our phone in hands, basically acting as our scripts, and we'll read these iconic scenes. Scenes from Shakespeare, scenes from uh, movies like Heat. And that's what we did last week. We, we, we did the diner scene between De Niro and Pacino. And it was like fire, man. I really got I want to act again soon because um, it's just such a well-written scene. And me and Joel have this great chemistry. Uh, we also, we once, we adapted to the stage uh, a sequence of Fight Club, by the way, where I was Tyler and he was Jack, the narrator. And that was also fire. Anyway, uh, working on Heat has just been part of this, this, thing lately where I have these heist movies in mind and, and, and songs about, you know, songs, movies about criminals and con men. And that's why my recommendation for this week is going to be an oldie, but a goodie. If you've never seen The Sting, you are out of your mind. Um, it's from the seventies. It stars Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Um, it's a classic. It came out in 1973, and it is definitely in my top 10 favorite films of all time. I believe it was on Netflix, or it might still be on Netflix. So with this sort of heist movie sort of frame of mind I'm in, that's why I have to recommend The Sting. Because I feel like we've seen a lot of the modern day heist classics. Most of us have seen Point Break and Heat. We've seen Ocean's 11 and 12 and 13. We saw The Italian Job, you know, the remake. You know, we've seen all these heist movies. A bunch, you know, Baby Driver was a great recent addition to the genre. Um, but the sting, I feel like a lot of people in my generation have not because it's considered, oh, that movie's old. It's from 1973. What do I care? Uh, see the sting and let me know what you think, because to me, that thing is a freaking masterpiece. Um, and speaking of masterpieces, you know, in terms of what I've been watching, I watched Game of Thrones and Ozark. And right now, Game of Thrones is where all my attention's at. Uh, we saw this weekend's episode. And I cannot wait for the season finale coming up next week. That show is just, it's unbelievable how good Game of Thrones is. Um, and that's it. I haven't really been, I have been to the movies in about a week and a half. Uh, I want to try to get there soon. I still want to see Annabelle Creation with my wife before it leaves theaters. We, re we actually really enjoyed the first Annabelle film and we love the whole Conjuring universe. So that's on my radar. But in terms of stuff that's out right now or opening, um, I can't say that there's a lot on my radar until September. You know, this coming weekend, there's nothing that's that is of interest. Uh, but of what's out, I want to see Annabelle. I want to see Logan Lucky, and that's about it. I'm gonna skip uh, Hitman's Bodyguard because it it fails my Rotten Tomatoes test at 39%. Uh, it's it just disqualified itself. Um, and yeah, that's it. So guys, thank you so much for enjoying this, uh, this episode of El Fanboy. Uh, if you have any questions for me, feel free to tweet them at hashtag El Fanboy. I'll be sure to address them next week. Stay tuned because <clears throat> coming this Friday, there will be a special event, which is likely to become a, a quasi-regular feature once I get the Patreon going next month in September. And brace yourselves, fools, because once September comes and I have this free time because both kids are in school, uh, there's going to be a lot of new exciting stuff. So until next week, adios. <laughs>